Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with immigration and trade. Edward Alden is the Bernard Schwartz Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. And he joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Great to have you good, here with us. Good to be with you, Dave. We continue to await uh, a revised version of this travel ban, uh, as it's come to be called, from, from the White House. Um, of course, with the first iteration of that, we had all of the uh, legal back and forth that followed. What are you expecting to see from the White House? Is there a, a way that they could put this out that could allay or quiet down the conversation that's happening in the courts? Mm, it may not quiet down the public conversation, but I think it will probably pass muster in the courts. So what we're looking at is a much more refined version of, of, of their, uh, of their uh, first uh, travel ban. So I think what we're going to see, we're going to see the elimination of Iraq, which is interesting. I think that's a concern from the Defense Department that Iraqis who've helped American forces in Iraq as translators, you can't leave them out to dry. So I think we're going to see that. It's only going to apply going forward. So existing visa holders are not going to have their visa is revoked. We saw 60,000 uh, people from the seven countries have their visas revoked. I think that's gone now. It's going to be clear that green card holders aren't affected. I think at the end of the day, this will pass muster in the courts. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. I still think it's a bad idea, but I think it will be crafted so that it that it can uh, hold up this time. Listening to the speech that the president delivered last week uh, in Congress, he laid out an economic case for doing this, for having more enforcement uh, for having immigration reform, perhaps. How grounded, in fact, is that, that this could make an economic difference, um, implementing a ban like the one that we're talking well, about? Well, I think the economic reform. case is exactly the opposite. I mean, we've seen a significant decline in travel bookings to the United States. So tourism is our largest services export, hundreds of billions of dollars every year, and people come to the United States to go to Disney World and stay in hotels and go to the beaches. So we're already seeing a decline there. The universities are going to be hit. We've seen you know falling international applications to American universities. Interestingly, they're soaring in Canada. University of Toronto applications from abroad, particularly from Americans, have almost doubled. So we are seeing real-world economic impacts that are going to be damaging to the United States, not just these seven countries. It's the signal that it sends the rest of the world about America's welcoming to, to foreigners. Ron Faruhar had her first column in the Financial Times over the weekend, and she, she focused on these issues, and something that stood out to me was uh, – she thinks that you know we we should be having a conversation about economic nationalism. That's being sidetracked by uh, all of the conversation about who who we're letting and who we're not because of um, where they're coming from, religious reasons, what what have you. Do you agree with that? Is there a proper debate to be had here about um, economic nationalism and 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 the the role of protectionism in the economy right now? Well, I think there is a proper debate about economic nationalism, and that's how to bring more of the benefits to the of the global economy to more Americans, which is really the, the focus of the work I did in my book. I think you know, a lot of Americans have done very well in the international economy. A lot have not, and, and we haven't thought enough about how to help those people, either to make sure that they're getting jobs that are connected to the global economy. That's what state and local governments are out there fighting for. Mm -hmm. They haven't had support from the federal government. Uh, export promotion, attract 
attracting investment. I think there are legitimate questions about our corporate tax system and whether it encourages investment. Those are the right economic yeah. nationalist conversations to be having. So let, now let me talk about something as, geez, we need help, is the Export-Import Bank. <clears throat> you devote five chapters to it, right? <laughs> help me. Let's start with the politics. Am I right? Democrats like it. Republicans don't. Yeah, which, did I, did which I get is that right? Yeah, it's true, but bizarre, right? Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I probably not five chapters, maybe five pages, but go. but but I find the debate over the export import bank uh, really quite nonsensical because here's an agency that is helping the exports of a lot of Americans biggest companies, the Boeings and the Caterpillars, but also a lot of small, medium-sized enterprises. The U.S. is an export underperformer. We don't sell nearly as much to the rest of the world as we ought to. Exim Bank doesn't cost the okay. taxpayers a nickel. It helps. We just had Jay Ireland on, GE Africa. He's been with GE since before Jack Welch. Did you know David Gurr? He went to St. Lawrence, home of the most gorgeous ice rink in the world. <laughs> I say that with RIT's fabulous new Policini Center. I mean, come on. St. Lawrence has the best ice rink. They dragged Jay Ireland out. Of it. He works at GE for years. He doesn't need help with an export import bank to sell GE stuff abroad. Well, I mean, a lot of the places that GE sells to are, are are places where it's hard to get bank financing. These are developing countries. They're buying big power so what systems does our bank and other. Do? What the bank does it is it essentially guarantees bank loans for exports to these countries. In theory, there's an element of exposure for the federal government. In reality, since it was set up in the 1930s, it's never lost a dime for the taxpayers. The United States does a fraction of this sort of export support that Japan or Canada or China or France or Germany do. We're way behind. The Republicans oddly have said, well, this is a sort of corporate welfare. It's not an appropriate role for the government. And and that's the kind of thinking on the Republican side that is so confusing. On the one hand, they say they're pro-business, yeah. they want to succeed in the international market, and yet they're weakening an agency of the federal government that is helping the United States do that at no cost to taxpayers. It has never made any sense to me at all. Peter Navarro has a piece uh, in the Journal this morning drawn from a speech he gave a few days ago, uh, and he asked the question, do trade deficits matter? He's looking at the relationship here between growth and net exports. Uh, I'll, I'll put the question to you. Do they matter? He, he makes the case here that a lot of economists, a lot of people uh, <laughs> on the, the coastal elites w- wouldn't wouldn't agree with that, that, that it doesn't matter. He says it does. Uh, a salient point? Yeah, I actually do think they matter. I had, a, I had a big roundtable meeting about a year ago at the Council on Foreign Relations on the record asking exactly that question. There are divisions won't surprise you. There are, you know, libertarian economists, my friends from the Cato Institute, who say, hey, there's a whole bunch of free stuff coming our way. What are we worried about? No, I think it does matter. I think manufacturing matters. I think most international trade is goods trade. I think running a big trade deficit is not a good idea. But there's there's a big leap from that to saying we ought to try to target this through trade negotiations. So most of what affects trade deficit has nothing to do with what we negotiate in our trade agreements. It has to do with the value of the dollar, low savings in the United States. Um, these are things that trade agreements don't get at. So yes, it's important, but the remedies that Navarro is talking about, I think, are going to be destructive. Ones. Yeah, but let's let's take this micro. We like to talk about <laughs> sixty thousand feet. Okay, Grove City, I think Pennsylvania. Good morning, Grove. City, Pennsylvania. G- I, I think GE Transportation, the 5GEB22 AC drilling motor, offshore features, 1150 horsepower, oh, 858 kilowatts. I am, this like drills my teeth. I don't know what. What I don't get is there's a hunk of metal, and you can't tell me this was made out of the corporate headquarters of GE. People made this, yeah. and we don't want to advance that abroad. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we should. I actually do think making stuff in the United States matters. But there is, you know, there's quite a bit of confusion in this administration. This is not your father's global economy, right? We don't just make stuff here and sell it elsewhere and buy stuff that's made elsewhere. We have these things called global supply chains. So I don't, I don't know exactly what's in that drill, but I'll guarantee you it's there a- are a whole bunch of imported parts <laughs> that go into assembling that exactly. drill. And you start to put big tariffs and other import taxes, you're actually going to weaken the competitiveness of GE's operations I mean, in Pennsylvania. David, not only does it have a single shaft extension with <laughs> hub, but it's pressure sensitive verifies your ventilation. Wow. <laughs> I'm stunned. I, I, I'm speechless. As I just <laughs> but come on, this is Michael Barr, the Grove City, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Michael Barr, where's, where's Grove City, Pennsylvania? Uh, I mean, I, Williamsport is the center of Pennsylvania. Yes, I get that. Our yes. Pennsylvania geography. Where the Little League is. Where's Grove City? Do you have any idea? <laughs> I, I, We're going to look at Sorry, I don't know. I, sorry, Ted. I get upset about this. Because we do all this esoteric blather on Bloomberg surveillance. Unlike what you this just This machine <laughs> takes a lot of different companies to build, right? Yeah, and, and you know, the thing about it is that, that when you're building machinery with that kind of sophistication, it's also, it, it's a key to innovation, which is where at the end of the day we lead as an economy. And so, you know, the the argument from Willie Shee and Gary Pisano at the Harvard Business School, if you want to be a leader in innovation, you've got to make stuff. So this notion that we can have everything made abroad and we can still be the innovation leader, I don't buy that. But again, it gets in the question of what are the best policies for ensuring that we make stuff Here's what's important. Jeff Immelt is, is worried about water ingress, intake louvers to protect from water ingress. That's sort of like the cocktail I had this weekend and the ice cubes as well. With this Ted Alden uh, on trade with the Council on Foreign Relations, let us back up. We want trade. We want exports. We learned 200 years ago, 300 years ago, that there was a unique trust in trade. Has the trust been shattered? Is the trust that came out of a mercantile theory onto something new and modern, has it been shattered? I mean, I hope not. Um, But, you know, we are clearly at the end of this long and extraordinarily successful period of trade liberalization. Really, you know, going back to the reciprocal trade acts under President Roosevelt in 1934, but very aggressively since the end of the Second World War. And, And it was a system basically in which countries agreed to make a trade. If you lower your import tariffs and other barriers to stuff that we make well, our exports, then we will do the same in return. So it was it was strange. It was sort of using mercantilism, you know, each country wanting to expand its exports for the purpose of freeing trade. That was what the GATT system was about. That's what the creation of the WTO was about. It was extraordinarily successful, perhaps the most successful set of global rules in any area in, in, in human existence. But we may well be at the end of that period. Do you have any confidence that the people that are harmed by globalization can be helped? Is there any policy prescription you've seen that helps textile workers in the Carolinas? Well, you know, in their place all the time, not necessarily, right? I mean, if a small town loses its factory, it's hard to come up with a replacement. But there are a heck of a lot of things that we could have been doing and should have been doing that would have 
made a difference. I think for younger folks, there's no question that retraining can make a big difference. The Europeans do that far better than we do here in the United States. Uh, for older individuals, you might just need to top up their wages if they have to go take a lower wage job through wage insurance. That may be a way to do it. Sometimes you'll have to help people retire early. There's just no other uh, way to do it. Um, helping people move to where the jobs are. And, and that's more complicated than you'd think, right? Because often their houses have lost their value. The places they're moving to are more expensive. So there are no easy fixes. But the truth is, we never really tried very hard as a country. We essentially let people sink or swim on their own. Something you hear from the president and from his complement of, of trade advisors is this will be no problem. We'll negotiate a lot of bilateral trade deals. You even saw that from that Peter Navarro piece. Uh, he posits that we can get a bilateral deal with Mexico uh, in a very short amount of time. Prince a very rosy picture of that. How difficult is it going to be to cobble together, to, to sew together this patchwork quilt of bilateral deals? Oh, I think it'll be extraordinarily difficult. These deals take years to negotiate. Um, you know, the advantage of the larger deals, the regional deals like TPP or the TTIP in Europe, you just get more bang for your buck, right? You've got, I mean, TPP was 40% of the global economy. So that's, you know, it was a hard negotiation, took eight plus years, but you get all of those uh, countries involved in one fell swoop. You do it bilateral, it's much harder, it's piece by piece. Also for companies, it doesn't work nearly as well because you've got this patchwork quilt of rules, right? Every Every deal's got its own particular rules on which products qualify, how much local content they have to have, et cetera. If you got a whole spaghetti bowl of these things, it's not nearly as valuable for the companies. A lot of companies aren't even going to bother to trade under the terms of these bilaterals. They're just going to accept whatever the what we call the MFN tariff is, the, the, the globally negotiated tariff. It's easier uh, for paperwork. So, no, this is a bad idea. It's always been a bad idea. Quickly hear that National People's Congress kicking off in Beijing. We heard from the premier uh, more good words about the, uh, the Chinese trade deal, that multilateral lateral trade, like 16 countries. Yeah, this is the, the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Will it grow more in light of what's happened here? I think it probably will. I think a lot of the countries that, that were looking to the United States uh, through the Trans-Pacific Partnership will say, well, this is a second best. Um, but, but, you know, again, those negotiations have been moving slowly. They're focused pretty much solely on tariffs. One of the things about the TPP that was so beneficial is you had rules for emerging industries. Like one of the big winners under the TPP would have been U.S. digital companies, you know, IBM, Google, Facebook, Intel, all the companies operating in the digital space. You had these, these excellent digital rules under TPP, which we're now throwing out the window. It, 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 we're going back 20, 25 years in the negotiation of trade arrangements by killing that deal. Just didn't make a lot of sense, even from mm. a, a Donald Trump perspective. Mm. Ted Alden, the, the book is Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. It is dense, highly readable, uh, a real treatise on where we are on our exports and imports. David, we should mention that uh, our next guest works with Mr. Hooper over at Deutsche Bank Economics and would be most inappropriate to speak about the matters at his bank or, for that matter, at the FBI. And well. We will steer clear of that, of course. Yes. Torsten Slock joins us now, Chief International Economist at Deutsche Bank. And uh, we were focused so much on the speech that Janet Yellen gave in Chicago on Friday, but 30 minutes before she commenced speaking there... Uh, her deputy, her vice chair, Stan Fisher, was speaking here in New York. You were in the room. Indeed, there was commentary about a, a paper that you co-authored, uh, I believe, or that Deutsche Bank, Peter Hooper co-authored, and you were commenting on. Give us a sense of what, uh, what the vice chair had to say uh, at that event as we were focused so much on what the chair was saying in Chicago. 
So the most interesting thing about what Stan Fischer was saying was that he basically said, uh, he articulated the words that had been unspoken for a while, namely that he literally pronounced it, we have had no bad data since the election. Uh, that's a, quite an analysis of the U.S. economy because it tells you that uh, their view is that uh, even absent whatever is coming on infrastructure, even absent whatever is coming on defense spending, lower corporate taxes, lower household taxes, tax repatriation, the Fed has the view now that uh, the U.S. economy is accelerating and getting better. And that's why they are keen on telling us that they will be hiking here in March. So when you look at motivations for this pivot that we saw last week, is that it? In other words, is the absence of, of anything big uh, the reason why we saw these Fed policymakers saying what they said last week? It remains a real mystery why they changed their view so much over the last uh, two weeks. I mean, the traditional economics textbook will show you a Taylor rule where the Fed reaction will be a function of whatever happens to the unemployment rate, whatever happens to inflation. And we basically didn't get any news on those two fronts that changed anything for the last two weeks. And nevertheless, they went out in an almost orchestrated fashion. Even Lael Brainard at Harvard gave a speech where she has been usually one of the more dovish ones, and now she was incredibly hawkish, saying that it's probably a good idea to go here in March. So it's a very, very strong signal, but it still remains somewhat puzzling where they got this change in their mindset from. Let's go to that Brainerd speech that was delivered just a a day or two before uh, the Fed chair spoke in in Chicago. I was struck by what she had to say uh, about how the U.S. economy fits into the sort of international uh, macro uh, economy. What's the the role here of, of global events and what the Fed's thinking right now? Yeah, I think that they, uh, for a long time, the Fed has basically been looking at the rest of the world uh, with, with some degree of being scared and some degrees of relief once in a while, in particular Europe, of course, but also Asia. And I think uh, that they, she described this as, uh, well, if the rest of the world comes with a shock that hits the U.S. shores, uh, the dollar goes up a lot, like it did from 2014 to 15. Uh, it could be events uh, elsewhere on the political front. We need to take that into account. But I think she's trying to say, and I think most of the FOC members are trying to say now that These things are really not, uh, at the moment, uh, a big worry. So that's why we feel good about things. Help me with one of your great expertises, which is analysis of the United States housing market. I mean, I know it's a smaller part of the economy now, but when you look at the housing market, can it help Janet Yellen gauge the vector of rate rises? Well, the problem for the Fed and for anyone that's analyzing the housing market is that house prices have gone up so much that we are so late in the cycle in the sense that home prices have become very unaffordable. So you start asking the question, where can that extra growth come from in housing if you already have an asset that's extremely expensive for the average American? And if that's the case, and if you're betting on a lot of acceleration in GDP growth, I think it's very unlikely to come from housing because it's already at such a high price. Then take that over to autos, where we've been cranking out 18 million, 17 whatever million. I mean, again, these are mature industries, right? Absolutely. And this is why normally I don't like the phrase that the expansion is getting old, but what's critical to understand about an expansion that's been running for seven, eight, nine years is to understand that you get in autos, as the great example, from a production level in autos that was around eight, nine million in 2009 to now, as you say, 17, 18 million. So you can't squeeze much more growth out of that. There's a limit to how many cars we can have in the garage, all of us. On average, we already have more than two cars per household. So in that sense, you ask the question, how can we get more growth out of the auto sector? How can we make more growth out of the uh, housing market. And with that backdrop, you really get from a macro perspective to ask the fundamental question, where's growth going to come from? We have plucked the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to the growth outlook for the U.S. How good does this week's jobs report have to be or how, how bad does it have to be to sort of derail what we've we've seen outlined here over the last week or so? Yeah, so that's, of course, a very important question. And I discuss that with clients uh, literally all the time at the moment, because if we get 100,000 uh, with the, 
that be enough for the Fed to say, whoa, wait a minute, mm-hmm. there, maybe there is a bigger slowdown? I, the Fed must feel uh, quite confident that we will not get uh, a drop. And I think they also, on the wage front, last month we did get a small drop down in average hourly earnings that's likely to be reversed because that's because of some special things going on in wages and financial services. But the bottom line is, I think for them, if we get, wa- if we get wage growth in the range of 25 to 2.8 on average hourly earnings, and if we get employment growth of 150 to 200, I think that they will feel much more confident about going in March again. You're going to come back after the break. We'll talk about the ECB and about what's going on in China. But a few more questions here about the Fed. You've written a lot about personnel, and there's a lot of curiosity about uh, what a Donald Trump Federal Reserve is going to to look like. And and we talk about that in sort of broad strokes. But when you look at the actual personalities, whether that's John Taylor or Glenn Hubbard, who Tom talked to on TV just a little while ago, who do you see as as a a front runner for those big jobs? And how does he or she stand to to reshape this institution these next few years? Well, we try to categorize it into the traditional, call it old school PhD economics candidates, and then a non economist candidates. And the list of PhD economic candidates, of course, includes uh, some of the names you mentioned there, John Taylor and Hubbard, others, uh, also John Cochran in Chicago. But on the non-PhD candidate, of course, uh, the number one is, of course, Kevin Walsh and others that have been standing out as uh, people who have extremely strong experience in financial markets, who understands the committee very well. He was on the FOMC for five years. So who will it be? It remains highly uncertain. But what I can tell you is one very important thing is that if it's a dove, then, of course, short rates will stay low, but the risk is that long rates will go up and therefore the yield curve will steepen because the market might say, wow, inflation is now going to overshoot and therefore we should be oh. steepening the yield curve. Whereas if it's a hawk, then short rates might go up and the market might say, well, gee, rates are being high prematurely and therefore you could get a flattening. So therefore, for rates investors, this is extremely important who it is because if it's a dove, you will have a steepener. If it's a hawk, you will have a flattener. Yeah, but the fact is we've had neither in the last four days of Fed frenzy How far out the curve can the Fed actually affect? So the academic literature would say very little, but as you know too well, well, the answer is that, well, most people would probably argue that 10-year rates even are a function of what the Fed stance is today. Uh, which is a little bit peculiar because the 10-year rate should not be a function of what the Fed does today. That should be a function of what you think will happen in 10 years' time. But nevertheless, the premium on 10-year rates moves around a lot with Fed communication and also moves around to the topic we'll discuss next, namely ECB, negative interest rates, and the flow of money that continues to come to the U.S. that's holding U.S. rates down. What's your dollar call right now as a shop? So we have the euro dollar going down and therefore dollar appreciating simply from the logic that if interest rates go up first in the yeah. U.S. and they okay. stay on hold the euro area for the foreseeable future, that should make the dollar more attractive. I mean, help me here with Alan Rusk. Where are we? Like, we're not at 80 cents or 70 cents. No, they forecast this by the end of this that year. That's a joke, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For euro dollar to go down towards one. Okay. Towards one, towards parity. parity. Well. Okay, well, Torsten Slack with us. Lots to talk about. We'll fold this over into a broader view of uh, Janet Yellen as central banker uh, to the world. What are you expecting? How, how uh, fine a, a needle does he have to thread on Thursday? Well, the backdrop in, some, in a headline, at least, is easy, that economics is good, yeah. politics is bad. Uh, and how do you go into a meeting and put those two things up on the scale? Uh, the, the challenge for them is that the economic data has been coming in better than what uh, they had expected and what the market had expected. So how do they uh, tiptoe around the issue of uh, uptrend in inflation, uh, better PMIs, uh, better employment data? Not quite a strong uptrend in wages quite yet, uh, but we still think that it, there are various options, but the most likely, in my view, is that they will probably stick to very close to the measures they had last time which is not quite wait and see, but wait and see with some recognition of the data actually being better. 
Uh, we got a budget from the UK this week as well. Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, speaking about that over the, the weekend. What do you expect to see there? Uh, and, and again, <laughs> Brexit is the backdrop, of course, for, for all of this. How does, how does he go about preparing and, and putting forward a budget with the uncertainty that, um, you know, we, who knows what will happen when indeed Article 50 is triggered? Oh, absolutely. And Article 50 is supposed to be triggered here in March. Uh, and we get all the problems with how do you get the mix of politics uh, getting into the cocktail with economics. And this for policymakers, including fiscal policy and therefore also the UK budget that's coming. How do you take into account what uh, the political scenario is and and they are forced to come up with a political scenario that has an outcome for the economy, which is why they will be associated with some growth rates that they will have to reveal about where we are going. And that's just really, really difficult. I mean, the PhD economics textbook does not give you any model <laughs> that tells you well, what politics should be in your right-hand side in your equation. Exactly where I wanted to go is to the model building that we're doing right now. If we're getting a regime change, if we're getting a Fed that's moving, Vice Chairman Fisher goes ultra-accommodative. He's admitted to me that we're going accommodative restrictives a mile away. Do the models work now? And particularly the interest rate part of our economic models, it's still a fiction, isn't it? I mean, the main challenge for the models is that they predict the future based on history. And is history particularly useful as a guide for the future? Well, when you have such a dramatic change in the underlying institutions and risks to the upside in terms of fiscal spending in the U.S., when you have dramatic change to the institutions in terms of political risks in the euro area with elections in Netherlands, France and Germany, mm -hmm. then uh, it's just really difficult to use the past to predict that, in particular given the record that the pollsters had with Brexit was not predicted very well and Trump was not predicted very well. So we have all been humbled quite okay. dramatically in terms of What's how to use this. What's normal for a Fed funds target rate? We've heard 3% this morning, is one guess. So the Fed itself uh, has the long dot in uh, the dot chart, as you know, and that's just below 3%. So uh, one very simple answer is the Fed answers your question by saying the Fed funds rate will peak at 3. That's the terminal Fed funds rate. Uh, they have been revising that down uh, essentially from 4 to 3 exactly. over the last several years. So even the Fed, all the PSDs that work uh, at uh, the Federal Reserve Board and also the whole Fed system I, I, have been revising dramatically down their views on where we are going. And, and David, Torsten Slack, as he always does, he's so brilliant, is giving me my chart for tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to do a dot chart. I rely on Torsten for charts and for the, the weekend reading of his. The, the migration of the market bet. The dots go precisely, as, as Dr. Slack said, to 3%. Mm -hmm. The extrapolation of the market bet now is in the vicinity of 2.1, maybe 2.2%. When? Longer term. I don't, what's longer term? Yeah. <laughs> longer term is when there's no more slime in my house, there... right? <laughs> Something like that. Let me close by asking you about China. We were talking about this with Michael McDonough, our chief economist at, at Bloomberg Intelligence, the, the National People's Congress kicking off uh, last night. How closely are you, you watching this? We talk about the interplay of politics and economics here. Uh, you know, with with, with President Xi here, up for I don't know, free elections, right? Reanointment, I suppose, uh, a little later this year. It seems like there, it's kind of the inverse. You you see a more cautious government uh, and maybe more cautious economic policy going into into that later this year. If you look at the Li Keqing index, which you can find on your Bloomberg screen, yes. uh, that basically shows quite a solid move up because that index includes data that's measured closer to the source. So this means that this means data that we have a little bit higher confidence in than general GDP. And that backdrop of the economy actually doing relatively well is in some sense making the NPC slightly easier politically because that means that they can focus on a little bit long, more long-run issues. And as usual, China has three main issues that we are listening very carefully to what's coming out, namely on the currency, uh, what's coming out on the housing market, 
market and what's coming out on opening up more on structural reforms and state-owned enterprises and basically allowing the Chinese economy to be more and more exposed to competition both domestically and externally. So we're watching very carefully and we are certainly very much aware that uh, any policy changes will be coming yeah. this week and that's why that's so important. Yeah, interesting First, to hear what he had to say about uh, opening up new housing, land for housing in Beijing and Shanghai. So we'll continue to follow that for sure. Thank you. How about land for housing in Brooklyn? In New York. I'll take Just, it. Yeah. I'll take Carve it. out a little plot in the park for me. Yeah. Torsten Slock, thank you so much. He is with uh, Deutsche Bank. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Mark Chandler uh, joins us now. Mark, what does the Brown Brothers Harriman call on U.S. dollar? Do we see a lift? Well, over the medium term, we're still bullish, but, you know, we did have a setback on Friday, sort of by the rumor, saw the fact as Yellen became the 11th Fed official that spoke last week, and that um, 10 of them, I believe, supported the idea of a rate hike uh, in a, next week. Is a rate hike a one and done, or do you fold in a series of rate hikes within the well, verbiage we that we saw? Yeah, sure. We're thinking that the Fed's going to go three times this year. Uh, I think that uh, very small, like, nuanced change in the way Yellen described how a comedy of the Fed is. And this, I think, helps illustrate how uh, people like me sort of go over the speeches with a fine-tooth comb. She changed her assessment of how, of how a comedy of policy is from being modestly to being moderately accommodative. And this basically means that while Fed has stayed the same, inflation has gone up, growth on a trend basis seems to have strengthened or became more solid, and so the accommodation then has become more than it was previously, which is why the Fed seems still committed to removing more of that accommodation. So a hike in, uh, I think that the market's view is that the timing of the move went from June or uh, May back to March, but that's not really changing the odds so much of a third hike this year. Two hikes completely priced in. The market went last week from about a one in four chance of a third hike to a one in three chance, and we think there's still scope then for the market to discount a somewhat quicker pace of Fed hikes. How important is the history when Janet Yellen delivers a speech like this and justifies what the Fed's done here over these last uh, few years? How important is that to you when you're going through it with a fine-tooth comb? Not so much her, her, collection of, her recollection of history. It's really more the forward guidance she gives, and that's where the importance is, that, the, that this is not 2015, this is not 2016. The Fed feels more confident that inflation will be rising and that the Fed's mandates, full employment, price stability are at hand. David Gura with Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We're joined by Mark Chandler. Let me ask you about a quotation here from our new Commerce Secretary. We have Wilbur Ross saying the peso has fallen a lot mainly because of the fear of what will happen with NAFTA. Quote, I believe that if we and the Mexicans make a very sensible trade agreement, the Mexican peso will recover quite a lot. Uh, what do you make of what he had to say there? And what's the likelihood there we could see recovery here uh, in the not too distant future? Well, actually, I think that's really the story uh, since, the, uh, since basically the middle of January. The Mexican peso, despite the Trump administration sort of beating up on it uh, during the campaign and afterwards, the Mexican peso is actually one of the strongest currencies this year since the middle of January. A couple of reasons, I think. One is I think that people recognize that a lot of what uh, 
Trump, the candidate, said was bluster, and his new team that's surrounding himself by aren't quite as hostile towards Mexico. So toned down rhetoric. Secondly, Mexico changed uh, the way that they intervene in the foreign exchange market, adopting a more Brazilian approach, which is, involves swaps rather than draining reserves. And the third thing I think we saw was Ross's comments, which gave us this last push down below the, say, the 1950 level. So I think the Mexican peso is, uh, has recovered quite a bit. Uh, in the past uh, two months, and I think that the changed rhetoric helps, but it still doesn't solve the complete problem. And that is, people think that Mexico is one of the countries that are that the re-exporting from the U.S. back to Mexico is important. The trade deficit with Mexico is important, and the the, the still the animosity towards Mexico, whether it's the uh, whether it's the wall, whether it's trade, uh, it, it still seems to me that if the Trump administration is looking for an, a quick or easy victory, uh, success. I think Mexico seems like a likely target. Uh, Wilbur Ross uh, now confirmed, Stephen Mnuchin confirmed as well in the Treasury Department. Uh, do you expect to hear more about the dollar from, from these officials? Of course, we heard such dissonance from them uh, and the president over these last few months. Do you think that this administration is clearer now in its, in its uh, sense of how it's going to approach currency? Well, I think that it does help that a lot of these people uh, have been uh, have to, you know have been confirmed. Uh, his economic team is falling into place, and I think that helps. I think that also a recognition. I think we're going to see this more coming from the upcoming G20 meetings, reminding uh, the U.S. administration of their international obligations. And if the U.S begins really talking the dollar down. And I think that up until now, it's been sporadic. It hasn't been a sustained campaign. Most of it took place in confirmation hearings. But I think if it is, if it is renewed, I think that the, the fear is, of course, that other countries will go down the same path. And I think that once I, I sort of think of it as an arms control agreement. We could have a battle over a real currency war. But I think that the G7, the G20 say, let's not do this. So that's why I sort of see it as an arms control agreement. Mm-hmm. And if the U.S. administration violates it, I think it opens the door to other violations. Well, that's very wise. Let me ask you the difficult question then on the operational outcomes of your theory. If this administration does what it says it wants to do, what are the institutional processes that we will see? Do the market vigilantes step in? Do large institutions step in? Or does the, can the Trump administration act in a unilateral way? Well, I think that out of all the things that, you know, I think analysts and economists may differ on exactly what order they place, the top five to, say, ten factors that influence the foreign exchange market. Reasonable people can differ. But I don't think that you'd find many people who would put wishes of policymakers in the top several, you know, the top most salient factors. What this means then is the best thing then, and that's what I'm advising our clients to do, is rather than focus on what is said, let's focus on the policy, what is done. And I think that the prospect of fiscal stimulus and monetary tightening is a powerful cocktail for a currency. The challenge, though, I think, is in the short run, that is the next couple of months, it's still going to be mostly about monetary policy. Very little on fiscal policy is likely before at least the summer. And by that, I mean three elements of fiscal policy. The tax reform, the the infrastructure spending, and the deregulation. Right now, it seems to me that the deregulation is being pursued through the executive orders and through the discretion that the government has. But the other two are, are not really in, the, in play yet, can be later. So that leaves monetary policy, and that's what we've been talking about, the market moving, mm-hmm. uh, shifting the timing of the Fed hike from, say, May or June back into March. 
Help us with, uh, with this other meeting coming up this week, this other central bank meeting coming up on Thursday. Of course, the Fed meeting next week for two days in Washington, D.C. But uh, give us a sense of how you're positioning going into that meeting, uh, the, the ECB meeting that uh, we'll hear uh, from Mario Draghi afterward on Thursday morning. Yeah, so the ECB meeting, I mean, there's two major central banks meeting this week. The ECB is one of them. The Reserve Bank of Australia is the other. I think most people have, are going into the meeting not expecting any policy change or any any rhetoric change. However, there is a possibility that some analysts are talking about, and that is in the forward guidance that the ECB gives. Right now they're saying, and they've been saying this for the last several months, is that rates will remain where they are or lower well beyond when the asset purchase program, as the QE, ends. And because inflation in the Eurozone is picking up, Germany inflation, for example, now is already north of 2%. Some people think the the ECB is ready now to change its bias, its its, sort of its risk assessment on its forward guidance. I think it's a little bit early, and here's why. Though headline inflation is moving up, core inflation is not. Core inflation, our measure of core inflation, X food and energy, that's what the ECB uses. And that bottomed at 0.6%. And despite the more than doubling of the pace of headline inflation, the core rate is at 0.9%, and that's where it's been stuck really for a couple of months. So I think that the ECB is going to view uh, headline inflation, not core inflation, and that because of the base effect, headline inflation is likely to – we're very close to a peak in headline inflation, if not this month, maybe next month. But with the, this is really the rise of energy prices, and that'll fall out of or begin fading mm-hmm. from the from the base effect. So we're really looking at it's a little bit early for the ECB to change its uh, its guidance, but it could change it maybe uh, later in second quarter. Well, Mark, thank you so much, Mark Chandler, with Brown Brothers Harriman. Without question, our interview of the day, Olivier Blanchard of the Peterson Institute. Professor, good morning. Uh, I'd like to touch first on productivity in your recent writings, and I think if I can do it more simplistically than you do in your wonderful macroeconomics textbook, let's think horse and cart. Is a bad economy the horse which leads to weak, tepid, lousy productivity, or is it the other way around that lower productivity leads to a bad economy. Yeah, good way good way to put it. I think it goes both ways, but in this case it looks like the uh, the main factor is really just the slowdown in productivity. If it was just coincidental with the crisis, we would can't think that the crisis was at the source of it. Probably has something to do with it, but it started before it, uh, it continues. So my sense is uh, we can take the decrease in productivity growth as, as the causal factor. And then it affects the economy very much, as I argued in the piece you, uh, you referred to. Fold into this uh, the argument that many make that we're in a period of secular stagnation. Lawrence Summers, among others, making that, that argument here. Uh, does this revise sort of your sense of, of that? No, I mean, again, the, the discussion about the secular stagnation has always been a bit fuzzy. If it means that we're going to have lower growth in the future, that indeed all the indications we have at this point is productivity growth is lower, and we have no reason to think it's going to go uh, up. Although at the same time, my sense is this forecast of productivity growth are extremely uncertain. And we very often have a decade of low productivity growth and that the next one is good. And sometimes economists exposed kind of find some explanation for it. We're not very good. But if we have to make an assumption, 
make a base forecast. It doesn't look very good, which means, yes, in that sense, uh, maybe not uh, secular stagnation, but something not, not, uh, not far from it. You write that people are adjusting to a less bright future. Give us a sense of what, what that future looks like and, and uh, sort of how long that adjustment process is going to be. Well, I mean, you know, we used to have 3-4% growth and think it was normal. We now, over the years, and in particular in the recent past, as we got out of a, of a crisis, we thought we would go back to the old trend. Uh, we never did. And now the best guess is we're going to be growing at something like 2-plus two, two percent for the foreseeable future. Now, this is very abstract. People don't think in those terms. But what this means is for firms, kind of sales prospects have been revised down. For consumers, income prospects probably have been revised down. You don't expect to make uh, to see your income go up as much as you used to. So when you have news like this, then for a while, you're going to cut consumption, you're going to cut investment, and as a result, you're going to get what can be called a, a Keynesian recession or a Keynesian slump uh, in response to this to these news. And my sense is that that's what has happened over the last few years. Yeah. Professor Blanchard, and we'll talk about this, so I'll be speaking with a professor in television here in a bit. Buried in your seventh edition on page 528 is the sobering reality of your IMF tenure. First lessons for macroeconomics after the crisis. What is the first lesson for the president? What is the first lesson for his good economic advisors that they need to take away? Uh, I, I think for the president, he should think hard about the fact that we had a financial crisis and that uh, Dodd-Frank may not be the solution to all problems, but it, it would be unwise uh, to relax regulation. Uh, he should uh, think harder about how to use fiscal policy right. Uh, I think there is a case for some infrastructure. There is no case for large deficits at this point. And he should encourage the Fed and let the Fed think about these alternative tools that the Fed has used over the last 10 years. These are precious tools if things go wrong. There are some temptations to reduce the scope of the Fed to use those tools, to eliminate some of those tools. That would be a mistake. Let me just end by asking you here about a speech that Peter Navarro just gave while we were on the air. He was addressing the National Association for Business Economics. He talked about trade, and he, he spoke about the relationship between growth and net exports here. The, the question he posed in that speech and, indeed, in the, the Wall Street Journal this morning is, do trade deficits matter? Help us understand that relationship there, net exports and growth. Uh, you know, both are, as we, as we call them in our jargon, on the genius variable. So it depends very much where it comes from. I mean, you can have you can have very strong growth, which is going to lead you to have large imports, and then you're going to have trade deficits. But in this case, the trade deficits are the result of high growth, and that's good. Or it could be that suddenly you can't sell anything because your, your stuff is not very good, in which case there's a decrease in foreign demand, and it kills growth, right? In all these cases, we see. So the fact, you know, there's no general correlation. It can go one way. It can go the other. Sometimes a trade deficit is good news, or at least it's the indication of good news. Sometimes it's the indication of bad news that you need to do something to competitiveness. Uh, there is no general relation between the two. Do you, uh, finally, sir, do you hear uh, within the writings and the speak of the administration a mercantile zero-sum mentality? Do we risk going back to something from previous centuries? 
it's very hard to know. As we know, the administration itself on a coherent uh, set of thoughts are people with different views. The, the, the obsession with trade deficits, in particular with bilateral trade deficits, seems to me to be wrong. Let's leave it there. Olivier Blanchard. I will continue with Professor Blanchard on Bloomberg Television uh, Worldwide. Professor Blanchard of the Peterson Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.